Welcome to Rock Band's podcast, where I give you the history of rock and roll, band by band. I'm your host, Jonathan Maliberti, and before we get to Beatles Part 2, I just wanted to thank some of you for your support. Last week's podcast launch was amazing because so many of you reached out, subscribed, and followed. People on Instagram like Blue Jay Flows, Julia Nappy, Strawberry underscore Beatles, Love Me Some Ringo, Harry Harrison, I love you all. I wish I could shout all of you out, but there are honestly too many of you, which I guess is a pretty good sign. Uh, I mean, we have so many people from so many different countries tuning in. That's so exciting. Thank you all so much. I'm so glad you like the show. I would not or could not be doing this without rock and roll fans like you. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast and share us with all your rock and roll loving friends. All right, let's get to it. Without further ado, I bring you Rock Bands Podcast Beatles Part 2. <laughs> Once Brian Epstein officially became the Beatles' manager, he had a huge impact on the band. He changed their look, helped finalize their lineup, and got them better work. Probably most importantly, Epstein acted as the Beatles' Mr. Fix-It. He was a problem solver, and he got them out of trouble when they got into it, and a lot of times they did. He took care of the business, and he took care of the publicity side of things. His biggest challenge yet, though, was getting the boys, as he called them, a recording contract. The band was based in Liverpool, but all the major record labels were based in London. Epstein would travel from Liverpool and arrange meeting after meeting with record labels, but got nothing but no's in return. Executives kept telling him that the era of guitar bands was over, and rock and roll was on its way out the door. Some good news came when Epstein secured an audition at Decca Records. The audition was held on New Year's Day of 1962. The Beatles cut more than a dozen tracks for Decca, a mixture of covers and originals. Epstein wanted to show Decca how versatile the group was, so he made them play a broad mixture of genres. The mix of genres actually had the opposite effect. The record execs didn't know what vibe the Beatles were going for. Were they a rock and roll band or an R&B group? After hearing nothing for a few weeks, the band's hopes were dashed when Decca informed Epstein that they would not sign the Beatles after all. Not really the best decision in hindsight, but that's beside the point. Not long after that, Epstein got a meeting with the head of EMI's Parlophone label. This was not as exciting of an opportunity as it sounds. Epstein had been rejected by pretty much every major label. And though EMI was a big name, Parlophone was their comedy label, so Epstein was pretty desperate when he met with them. Epstein and Parlophone head George Martin took to each other right away, though. Martin served in the British Army at the end of World War II before studying the oboe at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. The 36-year-old Martin came from a working-class background, but you never would have known it because of his perfect Queen's English, slick-back hair, and sophisticated demeanor. Both of them were elegant, professional men. Like I said, George Martin headed the comedy label, so recording pop music, while not unheard of for Parlophone, was not something they did with any regularity. But George Martin saw that rock and roll was, at least for the recent future, here to stay. If Parlophone wanted to keep performing well, they had to keep up with the times. Epstein showed George Martin the Decca tapes, and he agreed to give the band a chance on Parlophone. It's hard to overstate just how lucky the Beatles got here. 
after being rejected by pretty much every major label in London, their manager happens to get along well with the head of a small comedy label who is looking to take a risk with a rock and roll band. After the successful meeting with George Martin, Epstein was thrilled. He immediately sent the band a telegraph about the good news. The Beatles were doing a short residency in Hamburg at the time, which was now becoming a chore for them. In June of 62, the Beatles, still John, Paul, George, and Pete Best at this point, went to the studio and recorded a few songs at Parlophone. George Martin actually wasn't there for this first session, but he heard back the tapes and thought that Pete Best wasn't strong enough to continue with the band, at least not in the studio. This, of course, gave the band a formal reason to finally dump him and replace him with Ringo Starr, which we talked about last week. The first meeting between John, Paul, George, Ringo, and George Martin took place in the summer of 1962. It was professional and respectful, and the band called him Mr. Martin. Though secretly they mocked the uptight Martin and his schoolmaster demeanor, they even began to call him the Duke of Edinburgh behind his back. George Martin had them warm up before recording a song called How Do You Do It? Martin thought How Do You Do It had the potential to be a hit. The Beatles played a few underwhelming takes of it before John Lennon said to the new producer, quote, Look, Mr. Martin, I have to tell you, we really think this song is crap. I mean, it may be alright, but it's just not the kind of thing we want to do. Unquote. John wanted to record a few Lennon-McCartney originals instead of covers. George Martin was visibly shocked by John's blunt dissent before responding, quote, When you can write a song as good as that one, I'll record it. Unquote. The rest of the guys jumped in to agree with John, and George Martin, surprised by their confidence, agreed to hear one of their originals. The Beatles played him an early version of Love Me Do, and Martin actually saw potential in the song. He came out of the control room after the first take as if no conflict had occurred, and told John to add a harmonica hook to the song. Now, if you've heard Love Me Do, you probably know that the harmonica is really the most standout part of the tune. Even in the first collaboration between the Beatles and George Martin, we see an excellent example of the musical relationship between them. They became a team. Martin was willing to listen to the band and seriously consider their compositions, and the band, on the other hand, respected Martin's authority over the music's production. This relationship is why George Martin is widely considered to be the fifth Beatle. After George Martin had met the Beatles personally and heard their original song, he had to think about how to market the band. Namely, he had to decide who the frontman was. He thought Paul had the most commercial voice, and also had the charm and looks of a frontman. He briefly wanted to change the name of the band to Paul McCartney and the Beatles. John, however, added a certain personality and a grit to the band's image, and his voice was more unique. It's hard to know if the band would have gone along with a change like this, but in the end, George Martin decided to just keep the band together as a band. Now, this is another area where the Beatles were innovating. Think about all the popular acts back in 1962. There weren't many bands. It was Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, even the local Liverpool bands had a frontman, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. The Beatles were just a band of equals, which was very unusual at the time. When it came time to record Love Me Do for its release as a single a few weeks later, George Martin walked back into the studio with a slightly more controversial instruction. Ringo Starr wasn't going to play on Love Me Do. Ringo, being new, hadn't really played the song that much, and he was having trouble keeping the slow, steady beat of the song when they worked it out on the arrangement a few weeks before. Paul got frustrated as they had to keep stopping to correct the new members playing. 
George Martin was encouraging to the band at first, but in the control room his dissatisfaction with Ringo's drumming that day was well known, and he made a note to bring in a session drummer when the time came to record the song. True to his word, George Martin brought in the experienced session drummer, Andy White. On a September day in 1962, the band quickly cut Love Me Do, with Paul McCartney on bass and lead vocal, John Lennon playing harmonica, tapping his guitar and harmonizing with Paul, George Harrison strumming an acoustic guitar, and Andy White playing the drums. The B-side, P.S. I Love You, was also recorded that day with the same four musicians. Looking back at Ringo's brief stint on the sidelines, it's hard to imagine that this moment was all that significant. This was, after all, the first and last time that Ringo would not be a, the drummer on a Beatles session until a few sessions for the White Album in 1968. However, at the time, Ringo feared the worst. The band just hired him, and just fired Pete Best, in large measure because George Martin's dissatisfaction with his drumming. He was also still the new guy. Ringo once said that joining the band was, quote, like joining a class at school where everybody knew everybody but me, unquote. While John, Paul, and George really liked Ringo and thought he was a great drummer, they had a certain ruthlessness about them. If they felt like they were going to get famous with Andy White instead of Ringo Starr, the story of the Beatles might well have been very different. On this day, Ringo's future with the Beatles was not that certain. Ringo sat in the control room, sulking as George Martin and the engineers listened in on the band. Eventually, they told Ringo to return to the studio and add a bit of tambourine and maracas to Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You, respectively. Both contributions by Starr appeared on the final cuts. Love Me Do was released on October 5th, 1962. A lot was riding on the success of the single, so Brian Epstein ordered 10,000 copies to sell at his record store. He knew he could never sell most of them, but he thought buying such a large number would guarantee the song's appearance on the charts. The Beatles promoted the single aggressively by increasing their concert appearances and even playing a few gigs with one of their heroes, Little Richard. The song slowly creeped up the UK singles chart, eventually peaking at number 17. George Martin was satisfied with Love Me Do's performance, so he invited the Beatles back to record their follow-up single in the fall of 1962. John and Paul presented him with their original song, Please Please Me. Lennon was going to be singing the lead vocal, and Ringo was finally included on drums. Please Please Me started off as a pretty slow, bluesy song, but George Martin was able to get the band to arrange it into an upbeat pop song. After 18 takes of Please Please Me, Martin walked out of the control room and told the band that they had just cut their first number one single. Please Please Me was released in January of 1963. To promote the single, the Beatles played on a TV show called Thank Your Lucky Stars a few days after the release. The show occurred during one of the heaviest snowfalls in decades, so pretty much every kid in England was sitting around at home. This means the Beatles had an unusually far reach, and their performance on the show propelled Please Please Me up the charts, making it their first big hit. The band themselves still don't consider it a number one hit. Because of the way the charts worked in the UK back then, it didn't top every qualifying chart. Instead, it officially peaked at number two. However, it was a countrywide hit, enough for George Martin to bring the boys back into the studio to record their first album. (laughs) 
Before we get into the details of the Beatles' first album, it's important to know that during the band's early success as recording artists, their personal lives were changing dramatically. John got his girlfriend, Cynthia Powell, pregnant in 1962. He wanted to do the right thing, so he proposed to her, and the two married that August. John was still living with Aunt Mimi when all of this was happening, and she, in typical Mimi fashion, did not approve of Cynthia at all. She refused to even attend the wedding ceremony. The wedding ceremony itself was by all accounts pretty terrible. Neither John nor Cynthia's families were in attendance to any meaningful degree, and they didn't have a liquor license, so they toasted with water. Brian Epstein served as John's best man, and John even spent his wedding night playing a gig with the Beatles. John's marriage to Cynthia was doomed from the start. Epstein felt that if fans found out that John wasn't the eligible bachelor they thought, they'd lose interest in the band. So he had John hide his marriage to Cynthia. Cynthia wasn't permitted to say she was married to John, and the two didn't wear wedding rings in public. Epstein even covered their living expenses and had them live in one of his apartments in Liverpool, so the couple didn't appear on public record. All of this was pretty okay with John, who wasn't that interested in being married in the first place. He had several other girlfriends in Liverpool, Hamburg, and London. He even once said, quote, I did feel embarrassed walking around married. It felt like walking around with odd socks or your fly open, unquote. John and Cynthia's son, Julian, was born in April of 1963, just as Beatlemania was officially getting started in the UK. John and the Beatles were touring nonstop, and when they weren't playing, they were in the studio or doing a photo shoot, keeping John in London away from his Liverpool-based family. Paul almost had a similar story to John's. His girlfriend at the time, Dot Roan, got pregnant, so he proposed to her. She had a miscarriage, and a few months later, Paul ended the relationship. Paul was relieved that he didn't have to start a family quite yet. He then met the young actress Jane Asher, who was, being an up-and-coming star of the theater and the silver screen, much more famous than any Beatle at the time. Asher was also quite sophisticated, and she belonged to a wealthy, upper-class family. Impressed by all this, Paul became smitten with the beautiful Asher. The two began dating shortly after meeting. After weeks of dating, Paul actually moved in with the Ashers. As the Beatles became recording artists, they quickly made a lot of money. They made far more than the average English person and could afford to buy their families modest homes and pay for them to stop working. The Beatles' organization was also growing. The band hired road managers like Neil Aspinall and Mal Evans, who would work as drivers, instrument movers, and bodyguards. They had a recording team now, led by George Martin, with engineers like Norman Smith and Jeff Emmerich. The Beatles were now a very professional band. The Beatles showed up to the studio on Abbey Road to record their first album in late February of 1963. The band essentially just recorded their live show. Eight of the 14 songs were Lennon-McCartney originals, though for this album, songs were credited to McCartney-Lennon, which John hated. Songs like I Saw Her Standing There, Ask Me Why, and There's a Place. The rest, songs like A Taste of Honey and Twist and Shout, were covers. The band recorded the whole album, with the exception of the two singles, in one long studio session, lasting between 10 and 13 hours. There was no overdubbing, so if they messed up, they had to start over. John Lennon's voice was so tired at the end of the session that George Martin was apparently worried that he would damage his vocal cords permanently during the recording of the last song, Twist and Shout. You can actually hear John's gritty, cracking vocal on the song today. Paul and John weren't the only singers on the album either. George sang the lead vocal on the Lennon-McCartney original Do You Want to Know a Secret, and Ringo, never having sung a note in the studio before, nailed the song Boys in One Take. The album was named after their first big hit, Please Please Me, 
and did unusually well for an LP. In those days, an LP or album was mainly another way to sell singles. The Please Please Me album went to the top of the charts for 30 weeks, which was unheard of at the time. George Martin, wanting to keep the success going, came to the agreement with the band that they would release a single every three months and an album every six. Their follow-up single to Please Please Me was another harmonica and harmony-driven song called From Me to You. This was their first clean, number one hit in the UK. It topped every official chart in Britain, and the Beatles were now a pop music sensation. But still, though, the band was pretty much ignored by the national media. Sure, if you read Melody Maker or if you watched Thank Our Lucky Stars, you might well have heard of the Beatles. But if you read The Times or you watched the BBC, chances are you hadn't heard of them. That all changed when the Beatles released their next single, which would officially start a period now called Beatlemania. Even the recording sessions of She Loves You was madness. Someone left a door open and a mob of screaming girls entered the EMI offices, just trying to get a chance to look at John, Paul, George, and Ringo. A few even got into the recording studio, and Mal Evans had to do some light tackling. It took hours for the offices to finally be cleared by the authorities, but locked away in a cold recording studio, the lads were singing the famous Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs in the chorus of the song. At the time, the song was pretty unusual. The lyrics were from a different perspective than a normal pop song. It's in the third person. Lennon credited McCartney for this idea, stating, quote, It was Paul's idea. Instead of singing I love you again, we'd have a third party. That kind of little detail is still in his work. He will write a story about someone. I'm more inclined to write about myself, unquote. In September of 1963, She Loves You shot straight to the number one position, bumping from me to you off the top of the chart. She Loves You stayed at number one for four weeks, went down to number three only to go back up to one. Again, not a typical occurrence for songs at the time. To promote their new single, the Beatles played a television show called Sunday Night at the London Palladium, where 15 million people tuned in to watch. Nowadays with the internet, this doesn't seem like that many views. I mean, there are like videos of cats and people wiping out on skateboards with like quadruple that amount of views, but at the time, this was record-breaking. And think about it, 15 million television sets, and probably a lot more people watching those televisions, were tuned in at the same time to watch this program live. At the time, there were only like 54 million people living in the UK. The Beatles also played a show called The Royal Variety Show, in which Her Majesty the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret were in attendance. This is the show where John Lennon famously quipped to the audience before playing Twist and Shout, quote, Would the people in the cheaper seats please clap your hands? and the rest of you if you just rattle your jewelry, unquote. Comments like this added to the image of the Beatles. Back then, the UK was much more conservative, and it wasn't really acceptable to disrespect royalty like it is today. John's comments on the Royal Variety Show weren't all that disrespectful, but they were kind of cheeky and rebellious. Apparently, the royals in attendance both thought the comment was quite funny. The Beatles lost a ton of privacy in this period. Everywhere that was associated with the band or with them personally was now treated like a public monument to fans. There would be hundreds of fans screaming outside of their homes or even their parents' homes. They would be waiting outside of Abbey Road just to get a glimpse at the Beatles and scream their heads off when they walked by. The Beatles' performances even got so big that there would be more fans outside screaming their heads off than inside the actual venue. The Beatles would play to a hall jam-packed with screaming fans, unable to hear even a note of their own music over the hysteria. Sure, the Beatles had a little taste of fame in Liverpool. They had some screaming fans and some 
diehards, but this was a whole new level. I mean, this was exponentially bigger than anything they'd ever experienced. For the people in the UK at the time, it must have been deeply strange as well. I mean, look at the footage of people watching the Beatles play in 1963. Thousands of people, mainly girls, are shrieking and crying as if they're being tortured. Apparently, theaters sometimes smelled like pee because so many girls peed themselves during the show. I mean, it must have felt like an alien invasion or something. This level of mass hysteria over a pop band had never happened before. For the Beatles, this was pretty fun at first, but it kind of started to get dangerous. I mean, they were literally always trying to outrun or outsmart a mob that, if it caught them, I don't know what it would have done to them. Rip their hair off, tear them to shreds, I don't know, but not really the safest environment to be in. Beatles' schedule was so intense that they recorded their follow-up album to Please Please Me sporadically over the course of seven months. The final product, an album titled With the Beatles, had a black and white cover of the four Beatles in turtlenecks and was released in November of 1963. It had some notable songs on it. For example, John's It Won't Be Long and Paul's All My Loving. All My Loving is a favorite of mine and a particularly strong song on the album. Though it's a McCartney tune, it really shows how good of a rhythm guitar player John had become. With the Beatles also included covers like You Really Got a Hold On Me and Roll Over Beethoven. Again, the album was a mixture of covers and Lennon-McCartney originals, with one exception. George Harrison wrote his first original composition entitled Don't Bother Me and included it on the album. Unaware if he could even write a song, he wrote the tune while he was sick in a hotel room on tour. George admitted that it wasn't a very good song, but it was passable, and he was learning. Unlike John and Paul, who had began writing together in the 1950s, he didn't have a creative partner, and he had to start considerably far behind his two prolific bandmates. But the money, as well as the influence in the band, was pretty dependent on songwriting, so George took to it. Now, John and Paul didn't really take Don't Bother Me that seriously, and kind of patronized George for it. As a result, George didn't contribute another song until 1965, but he began to store his songs for later. He was writing the whole time. Now, George's song stashing will be an important topic later in the podcast. Another important song on With the Beatles is a song that Lennon and McCartney wrote called I Wanna Be Your Man. Ringo sang it on the album, but John and Paul wrote it for another band, an up-and-coming London-based blues band called The Rolling Stones. John and Paul stopped by the studio the Stones were in when they were recording their first album in 63. The band needed new material, and Mick Jagger and Keith Richards had not become songwriters yet. Apparently, the Beatles wrote the song there and then, wowing the Stones and inspiring Jagger and Richards. Paul even taught bassist Bill Wyman the song backwards on the bass guitar because there were no left-handed basses available. The Rolling Stones recorded the Lennon-McCartney original, adding a bluesy slide guitar solo played by Brian Jones, and they released it as a single. The song peaked at number 12, giving the Rolling Stones their first ever hit, and Lennon-McCartney a new career in writing songs for other bands. Between the recording of their first and second albums, the Beatles had a quick break in the August of 63. Paul, George, and Ringo went to Tenerife, a Spanish island with their girlfriends, and John Lennon and Brian Epstein went on vacation together in Spain. Brian Epstein was gay, and was well known to have always had a crush on John Lennon. When the two returned from the trip, John was greeted by taunts from the band and his friends about his, quote, honeymoon with Brian Epstein. Now, nobody knows exactly what happened in Spain, but John was extremely defensive. 
The Cavern Club disc jockey insinuated that John Lennon was gay, and a very drunk Lennon responded by punching him in the face repeatedly. Of the incident, John Lennon said, quote, He called me an expletive, so I battered his bloody ribs in, unquote. The disc jockey was so badly injured that problem solver Brian had to pay him hundreds of dollars, a much larger sum back then, to not make this a legal problem. John Lennon also wrote a written apology which was published in the Daily Mirror. In the fall of 1963, to support their second album with the Beatles, the band was in the studio recording their fifth single. John and Paul had really begun to hit their stride as composers. They had about a year's worth of studio experience and knew generally what kind of song and hook they needed to top the charts. They were pretty superstitious, though. At first, they thought songs with love in them did better. For example, Love Me Do did well, and She Loves You did well. But they also said, what about the word me? Please Please Me and From Me to You. Those were big hits, too. The band, as well as George Martin and the production team, knew that this next song was going to be their biggest hit regardless of the words in it. It was a song called I Wanna Hold Your Hand. At this point in their careers, the Beatles were untouchable in England, and very popular in places like Sweden, Germany, France, and other countries. They had not, however, had any success in the United States. Their biggest American single was From Me to You, which had failed to even crack the top 100. John and Paul were in Jane Asher's basement when they wrote I Wanna Hold Your Hand, and they wrote it with success in America in mind. They had rejected tour offers as support acts in the States because they wanted to play America with a hit record. They released the song in November of 1963 in the UK, and it again shot to the top, knocking She Loves You off the top spot. They released it in the US in December of 63. Brian Epstein was happy that the Beatles song I Wanna Hold Your Hand was very innocent lyrically. For a while now, he'd been carefully grooming the clean, suit-wearing good boy images of the Beatles. This wasn't exactly the reality. The world didn't know the Beatles that would wash pills down with beer before they headed over to the brothel or to go cheat on their wives and girlfriends. But Brian wanted to keep the image clean, especially for the much more conservative America crowd. In January of 1964, the Beatles were on tour in France. They were staying in Paris's George V Hotel when they received word that their latest single had reached number one in the United States. With I Wanna Hold Your Hand, at long last, America had fallen to the Beatles. Thank you so much for tuning in to Beatles Part 2 on Rock Band's podcast. You're not going to want to miss next week's show. We're going to talk about Ed Sullivan, the Beatles' success in America. We're going to talk about Hard Day's Night and so, so much more. So don't forget to subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you're listening. Follow us at Rock Band's Podcast on Instagram. And until next week, listen to the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs>